This morning we're continuing on our series through the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, you can turn to page 862 and find this reading. If you're familiar with your Bible, then some of these words will sound familiar to you because these words closely echo what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 and following. It's unclear whether this is the exact same speech of Jesus that's just recorded in a different way with different details or if if this was another occasion where Jesus spoke some of the same things but perhaps in a different way or a different order. Some, some call this the Sermon on the Level Place, because in verse 17 it says, And Jesus came down from the mountain and stood there on a level place. So it could be he, he's still up on the mountain, just at a, a shelf from which to address this large crowd that surrounded him. Let's read together, beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Listen to God's word. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. To understand this passage, I want you to look closely with me at the way Jesus arranged his teaching here. So we see that Jesus first pronounces blessings and then woes. And there's four of each of them. Four times he says, blessed are you, and four times he says, woe to you. And when you look closely, you see that each announcement of blessing closely matches one of his announcements of woe. So first look at verse 20, is blessed are you who are poor, and then verse 24, the matching woe is woe to you who are rich. We can go through each of them and we see how each of them correspond in that way. We also see that the blessings and woes correspond in the way they treat time, or we might say if we were in grammar class, they're tense. So look at verses 21 and 25. They both describe things that are true now. So he says in verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now. And then he promises a future reversal. You shall. Then verse 25, he says, You shall be satisfied. And then in verse 25, he says, If I can find it here, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So, hungry and full, right? They correspond, and there's this pattern of now, and then something that will happen. So, this is a very closely structured passage. 
And then finally, the last blessing of the and the last blessing and woe kind of pair, they continue the pattern, but they also break it, which is also something to pay attention to when you're reading the Bible, when the pattern is broken. So in both cases, Jesus uses the same construction, blessed are you when, and then he says, woe to you when, and in both cases, he's talking about the way that people have treated prophets or false prophets. But what's notable is the way that verse 22 breaks the pattern. So after he, he pronounces this blessed on, the, on you when, when people revile you, he goes on and on. He elaborates in great detail. And he, he provides commands that go with the blessing. Rejoice, leap for joy, for your reward is great in heaven. And I think that Jesus' elaboration of the fourth blessing and woe pair tells us that this is one that deserves our special attention. It kind of stands at the center of these matching pairs, and it gets the, the most elaboration and exclamation. So now that we've looked at the structure of the teaching, we can look more closely at what Jesus said. And we're going to follow his own arrangement by organizing our time around the pairs of sayings. So first we're going to look at the fact that Jesus gives the kingdom. That's the point of the first blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. Jesus gives the kingdom of God. Second, we'll see that the kingdom is marked by fullness and joy. That's the second and third pair of blessings and woes. Third, kingdom citizens will be treated like the king. Kingdom citizens will be treated like the king. So here are those three points again. Jesus gives the kingdom of God. The kingdom is marked by fullness and joy. And kingdom citizens will be treated like the king. So let's look in more detail at this first blessing woe pair. First verse 20 and then I'll read verse 24. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So to start this, we should think for a second about what Jesus means by blessed and woe. By saying blessed are you, Jesus is describing the good life in his kingdom. So it's not quite right to think of these as promises, although they're like promises. Rather, Jesus is saying this is the way things are. For those who are under my rule, who submit to my rule, who trust in me. The pronouncement of woe is like a prophetic word of warning. So Jesus is saying, beware, you're in danger. In this first woe, he's saying, if you think riches are the path to the good life, then all that you're going to be left with are riches. Beware. Because those who set their heart on riches will miss out on the great blessings of life in God's kingdom. So that's what blessed and woe means. Blessed describes good life as King Jesus defines it. And the woes are words of warning to those who think they found the good life, but are in danger of completely missing what God is doing through Jesus. Well, this kind of teaching was very important to Jesus' audience. At this, at this point in Luke, remember, Jesus has just called his 12 disciples as apostles, and he's standing there on this level place. He's surrounded by the 12. 
He's surrounded by a great multitude of disciples. And then it seems like there's even another category of just kind of onlookers. People who are following Jesus, seeking healing, who are interested in what he has to say, but aren't numbered among the disciples. So this is a mixed congregation that he's preaching to. And it would be important for them to understand clearly what he's all about. It would be important for the disciples to be able to understand, am I really a disciple? Am I really following him? And it would be important for those who are just maybe there trying to figure out what's the hubbub about to know what is Jesus really saying. What Jesus is doing is he's taking pains to make clear what it means to follow him. It means this, not that. And this is really helpful for us as readers of Luke, right? Because we are all tempted to deceive ourselves, right? We're tempted to come up with our own version of what it means to be a Christian, Maybe something like, I'm a pretty good person. And certainly Jesus would approve of me because I'm a good person. We can come up with all kinds of, of self-deceptions. There are lots of ways to get Jesus wrong. And so it's helpful for Jesus, instead of letting us flounder in our ignorance, to define what he means to follow him. But what we find is that Jesus' definition is unusual. It takes us off guard. It's, it's pretty strange. He says, blessed are you who are poor, and woe to you who are rich. I mean, we normally think of wealth as a blessing, and it is a blessing. And we normally think of poverty as something to be avoided. If you're poor, you're working hard to be not poor anymore, right? He says that the, the kingdom of God, though, does, belongs to the poor. He describes a different way of thinking of these categories, now, there's certainly more here than just talking about material wealth and poverty. He's describing some spiritual realities beyond these material things. But it is good just to sit for a second with the strangeness of what Jesus has to say. That strangeness helps us to see that if we're going to understand what Jesus says the good life is, we can't rely on our normal intuitions. The way we normally see things is very likely to lead us astray when it comes to following Jesus. If we size things up according to our own wisdom, we're going to miss out on what God is doing. That's a fair description of what the Pharisees had been doing. They had been sizing Jesus up according to their own standards, according to their own wisdom. And so that led them to come to critique Jesus, not to be taught by him. And so Jesus is strange message calls us to humble ourselves, to humbly listen, to seek to learn from what Jesus has to say. So we need to listen carefully to his words. In the spirit of listening carefully, I want you to remember that this isn't the first time that Jesus has spoken of the poor in, his gospel, or in Luke's gospel. So back in chapter 4, when Jesus was beginning his teaching ministry and he went to Nazareth to teach in the synagogue, he began that ministry by quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he said that this prophecy was fulfilled in their midst. Jesus was the servant who had come to proclaim good news to the poor. In that section of, of Luke chapter 4, he concludes his teaching in Capernaum by saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. 
So we have both of these concepts, the kingdom of God and the poor, introduced there with Isaiah 61 kind of lurking in the background to fill out what this means. Well, what this means is that Jesus had come to to open the eyes of the blind. He'd come to free those enslaved to sin and death. He'd come to comfort those who mourn. And so the poor in Isaiah chapter 61 and Luke chapter 4 were were not merely materially poor, although they may have been that, but they were people who were brokenhearted because of sin. They were people who understood themselves to be spiritually bankrupt. That's who he was talking about in Luke chapter 4, and I think that's who he means to address here in Luke chapter 6. We see here that disciples of Jesus are those who are like Peter in chapter 5. Remember what Peter said when he saw the nets breaking. He fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's what disciples of Jesus are like. They're like the leper who came to Jesus after the Peter episode, and he knew he was unclean and needed Jesus to make him clean. Disciples of Jesus are like the paralyzed man laying at Jesus' feet who are weak and unable to walk. They need Jesus to forgive their sins and heal them. Disciples of Jesus understand that their lives are ruined by sin and they've come to Jesus for salvation. That's why it's blessed to be poor in Jesus' way of life. It's to these poor people, these spiritually bankrupt people, that Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of of God. It's a striking statement. What does it mean for Jesus to say it's yours? The kingdom of God belongs to you. Well, first and foremost, it means salvation from sin. Instead of receiving judgment for sin outside of the kingdom, the poor who have faith in Jesus receive forgiveness of sin. To receive the kingdom of God is to receive forgiveness from the king. And not only to receive forgiveness, but to receive eternal life. Remember I said that the the tenses, the grammar of this matters, he's talking in the present tense. Those who are poor right now today, yours is the kingdom of God if you come to Jesus in faith. It's a present reality. Eternal life is not just something that we receive when we die and go to heaven. Eternal life is ours now by faith in Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is the the life of joy and peace in God's presence, living under Jesus' rule. That's what Jesus says to the poor. But to the rich, Jesus says, you have received your consolation. If you remember back to Luke chapter 2, you might remember that faithful Simeon who greeted Jesus in the temple is said to have been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Jesus was the consolation, the great comfort that he was waiting for. And he died in peace having seen Jesus, the consolation of Israel, arrive in his house. And so Jesus here pronounces that the rich have a consolation. But that consolation is simply their own riches. But Jesus doesn't mean here that they can't be saved. So there's hope, rich people. You can be saved too. But Jesus is very clear that wealth can be a great obstacle to our salvation. 
He says in the parable of the sower that the desire for riches is like a weed that chokes off the seed of the the gospel word in our lives. In multiple parables, he warns about rich people who store up for themselves treasures on earth. He says in Luke 18.25 about the rich young man that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why is this the case? Why is wealth so dangerous? One reason is because that wealth provides at least the illusion of self-sufficiency. Right? Wealth provides a kind of comfort and security. If you have money, you're just less reliant on others to help you. And we can take that approach that's true in a worldly sense, and we can bring that same approach to God. We can begin to treat these blessings from God as if they are the the end and the gods in themselves. That they are our comfort and our security. Or we can become convinced that because we are wealthy, that it's a sign that God is happy with us. That we are masters of our own fate. That we are righteous. We think surely God must approve of our life because he's blessed us with such obvious material things. So wealth has all kinds of traps for us. We can be deceived into thinking that we don't need God. But notice that our Lord would have us see the fleeting nature of wealth. Yes, it provides comfort and security here and now. But again, if you put your trust in wealth, that will be all the comfort you ever know. The heaven on earth that you can build here with your money is no real heaven at all. It will pass away. And your temporary comfort will give way to eternal misery. Do we see the truth about the empty promises of our money? Jesus wants us to see the truth. He wants to expose the pride that wealth can encourage. We need to be aware of it. We can have long conversations about why wealth is a blessing and how to use it for God's good purposes. Those are great conversations to have. Perhaps this text will encourage you to think about that in your own life. But I think the brunt of it is to warn us of the danger of putting our hope in our money. And so this first pair, this blessing and woe pair, presents us with a choice. Will we choose self-reliance? Will we choose to to seek and chase after immediate comfort here and now above all else? Will we live for what our money can give us? That's an appealing choice, right? I mean, you can, you can see and feel the, the benefits of your money, whether it's the rising bank account or the, the luxurious cruise you bought, whatever it is, you can see and feel those things now, and that's appealing. But do we see the, the lie that wealth tells us? Do we understand that it can't solve our sin problem? Do we understand that no matter how much money we have, that without Jesus, we are spiritually bankrupt? And do we see that in the kingdom of God, Jesus offers us a treasure that moth and rust can't destroy? Do you see that in the kingdom of God, Jesus offers us eternal, unshakable joy? It's unshakable as King Jesus himself. We have to be honest, the blessings of the kingdom are not tangible and visible, right? We can't see them and feel them and smell them. 
but they are very real. We can receive the blessings of the kingdom of God today by faith in Jesus. And we can know that life in God's kingdom will have no end. Right? So unlike that, that heaven on earth that we construct with our wealth, our life with God goes on forever. So today, by faith in Christ, if you're a sinner here and you know you need forgiveness, you can be forgiven. You can know that you are forgiven by trusting in what Jesus did for you. We can know that the Lord is with us now and that we will be with him for eternity. To see these blessings, you need the eyes of faith. You need Jesus, the one who came to preach good news to the poor. You need to open, you have him open your blind eyes. This first blessing and woe pair should lead us each to ask, am I rich in the wrong way? Am I trusting in riches or trusting in Jesus? Riches promise comfort and security, but they fail to deliver. Jesus gives his eternal kingdom of life to the spiritually bankrupt who come to him by faith and trust in his work. Let's, let's now turn to verses 21 and 25 and see the second point, that the kingdom is marked by fullness and joy. Let's read together verse 621. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So again, paying attention to the, the tenses here, we've now shifted to a present condition with the promise of a future reversal, right? The hungry now will, will be satisfied in the future. Those who weep now will laugh, and then vice versa. Woe to those who are full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to those who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. These blessings build on the theme that Jesus has already introduced about riches and poverty. Present circumstances are not always what they seem. Well, one way to, to get Jesus wrong is to interpret what he's saying as if he's just trying to glorify suffering. That if Jesus is, is all about suffering for its own sake, that's not what he's arguing. But he does want his disciples to know that they should not be looking for ultimate joy in this world. This is not the place to focus your attention to have final fulfillment. And just like we did before, we can look at other places in Luke that seem to flesh this out. So if you recall when Mary was praising God in Luke chapter 1 after she had received the message from the angel and she had been with Elizabeth, she sings that great song, the Magnificat, and she uses words that preview Jesus' words here. She said that the Lord has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see that same dynamic at work, the hungry filled, the filled sent away empty. But notice that Mary was praising God here for the good news that the Son of God was coming. And she had a special sense of that coming, right? Because she was carrying him in her, her womb. But the main point is that she's praising God for coming to, to, to earth in Christ to save his people. This is what she'd been waiting for, she and other faithful Israelites. 
And so as we interpret this language of the hungry being filled, we see how it, how it transpires. The hungry are filled as those who've been waiting for God's salvation to be revealed. They see it unfolding before them because Jesus has come. We get a glimpse then of what this, this filling really means. It's to enjoy the fullness of God's salvation. So that salvation began to unfold as Mary delivered Jesus into the world. It continued to unfold through Jesus' life. And we can say that now we can, we can look back and see some measure of its fullness as Christ died and rose again and descended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And yet we even await its final consummation when all things will be completed. So we are still hungering and thirsting and still waiting for God to satisfy us and knowing that he will. Those who hunger and thirst for God's salvation will be satisfied. That's what Jesus promises here. Just like Mary hungered and was satisfied, so will we be. Well, if you dwell on this and you meditate on it, I think it's wonderful good news. But it's not news that we really want to hear. We prefer a message that promises that God will bring joy and satisfaction now. That would be a much more popular message. Just today, I came across on, through my Instagram feed um, the prominent pastor here in Houston who was twisting God's word to say that our suffering in this life will be short, only for a little while, not your whole life. He said that after the season of struggle that you're having, God will pay you back for what was unfair. For him, the words of Jesus here are words that just in a short while, maybe a few months, maybe if things are really bad, a few years, things will turn around. He says that God has blessings for us that are going to catapult us to a new level in our finances, in our health, in our relationships. It's a compelling message to hear it delivered so, with so much conviction and to have God's name attached to it. That's a message that Many people seem to want to hear, and I think our hearts are drawn to it too. Yeah, quick relief, here and now. Laughter turn, or morning turn to laughter. But here's a way to tell that preachers like him are lying and mishandling the text. They never preach the woes. Right? Jesus not only says that those who weep will laugh, he warns that those who laugh will weep. Right? If we understand the the blessing is all about this, to be all about this life, then how do we understand what it means for our, our laughter return to mourning? We'd have to understand it in the same way. It would make Jesus' teaching turn to nonsense, that the Christian life is just this pattern, right, of, of, of woes turning to laughter and vice versa, back and forth. But Jesus makes it clear what he means by weeping in another part of Luke, in Luke chapter 13. If you, you want to turn to it, you can. I'm just going to read one verse. But in the larger context, he's talking about coming into the narrow door of salvation. This is Luke 13, 22 and following. He describes this narrow door and he says it's like a master is there at the house who controls who can enter. And he pronounces another a woe on those who, who come to the door after it's shut and it won't be open to them. He says that some will come to the door in chapter 13, 26 and say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Jesus, we were with you, they'll say. 
But the master will respond, I tell you, I don't know where you came from. You come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And at that point, he breaks out of the parable and he describes the place where these unbelievers will depart to. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. What is Jesus describing there? A temporary downturn in your life? He's describing hell. Right? When Jesus tells these folks that their, their laughter will return to weeping and mourning, this is what he's talking about. A place outside of the kingdom of God, outside of life and joy and peace with God. A place of weeping. Jesus is dealing here in eternal realities. Eternal joy and fullness for those who come to him by faith. An eternal hunger and weeping and mourning for those who reject him. Those who appear to be waiting now. Those who appear to be longing for something more. Who who are lamenting the unrighteousness and the sin of this world. Those who hunger for God's salvation. They will be satisfied. They will laugh with joy in the kingdom. When God's full salvation is revealed. But those who seem full now who are proud and self-satisfied. They will weep forever. Now, this is not telling us as believers that we have to be really gloomy, right? We should be joyful. But that joy is rooted in faith in Christ. So we might say that the laughter he's warning about is, is the laughter of those who reject Jesus. The laughter of those who say this life is all there is. It's the laughter of those who see God as a means to their own ends. That kind of laughter, that kind of full life, leads to eternal emptiness and destruction. How do we spot that kind of pride? I mean, sometimes it is loud and brash and easy to see, but it takes a more subtle form as well. Think about all of the distractions that our lives offer. Right? It's, it's possible to just fill your life flitting from one entertainment to the next, isn't it? Maybe it's from your Facebook to your Twitter to your Instagram to the TV to your stock portfolio to what's going on on sports, right? To the political news, whatever it is. You just flitter around full of distraction. Maybe you pray when you feel worried or you need something. But before long, you started to live your life in order to avoid boredom or discomfort. And you're simply just presuming that God will be there when you need him. Is your laughter hopeful or hopeless? Is your laughter grounded in the hope of the gospel? Or is it hopeless, filled with a thousand tiny distractions? Do you have the lasting joy of knowing Christ? Or do you have the kind of fleeting joy that will one day turn to weeping. The difference is whether or not you've walked through that narrow door, that you've come humbly to Christ and trusted in his saving work for forgiveness. For those who wait on Christ, their hunger and weeping now will be turned to eternal fullness and joy. 
The final pair of blessings and woes is found in verses 22 and 23, and then in verse 26. And here we see that people of the kingdom will be treated like the king, or I think I said citizens of the kingdom will be treated like the king. So let's read verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And now verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I think this last one may be the hardest one to believe. We've already gotten over poverty and riches, but now he says that blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and spurn your name as evil. I don't know anyone who responds well to that kind of treatment. Being hated or excluded or called evil, I mean, those are kind of worst nightmare scenarios. They don't seem to be anybody's idea of the good life. But there is a key qualifier. Now, the qualifier doesn't take away the pain of persecution, but it does provide the foundation for endurance. Jesus said we are blessed when we suffer these persecutions on account of the Son of Man. It's one of Jesus' favorite ways to talk about himself, to use this phrase or this title, probably that comes from the prophet Daniel, the Son of Man. And he used, used it a couple of times in this gospel already. So when he healed the paralytic, he said that that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, rise and walk. And then the passage we looked at last week, he revealed himself as the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. It showed that Jesus has the authority to interpret God's law. And it was after that last revelation that the Pharisees began to more clearly oppose Jesus in Luke's gospel. So that that confrontation ended with them being infuriated by Jesus. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And we know where those discussions led. When they encountered the Son of Man, they killed him. They crucified him as if he were a slave. Now, Jesus here doesn't mention his own death. He won't do that in Luke's gospel until chapter 9, where he kind of begins his journey to Jerusalem. Instead, what Jesus does is he numbers himself among the prophets of old. And he reminds his disciples that Israel has a long track record of persecuting God's true prophets. And this track record began with the first prophet, with Moses himself, right? God's people routinely opposed him. If you remember back to the psalm we read, Psalm 106 last week, we read about the stories of the the people opposing Moses and Aaron and being judged by God. And that track record of opposing God's true prophets continues all throughout Israel's history. By contrast, Israel loved the false, false prophets because the false prophets would tell them what they wanted to hear. Perhaps a little bit like that preacher I mentioned earlier. They told Israel things like, Egypt is the one who can save you from the Assyrians. Go, go get some help from Egypt. Or they told Israel, the false gods of Baal, they can, get, they can make it rain. Sacrifice to them. 
They told Israel that Israel could enjoy the blessings of the land without repenting of their idolatry. Israel spoke well of those false prophets. And so Jesus holds out to us the fact that true prophets of God are often hated. And there will be people that oppose you and do all kinds of evil to you because of your faith in me, the Son of Man. Now this provides an interesting test case because we know that true prophets are often hated. And I think it's tempting for us to make a small but significant misstep into thinking all who are hated must be true prophets. This is a big problem in our culture, right? You can make a lot of money for yourself and a big name for yourself by starting fights. One way to build your reputation is to make sure that you have the right enemies, that the right people hate you, right? So if you're a conservative talk radio host, you want to make sure the New York Times hates you, right? So you can talk about the evil media. So you have to have the right enemies. And I think we do see some evidences of, of popular Christians sometimes working this same tactic. But we need to be clear that just being hated is not itself evidence that you speak the truth. Loving and peddling conflict does not make you like Jesus. What Jesus does commend here is suffering on account of the Son of Man. Again, this title that he loves to use for himself. It's when we live and suffer for King Jesus' sake that we have cause for rejoicing. Our reward is great in heaven when we are treated like Jesus because we are following Jesus. Because we're professing the truth that Jesus taught and we're living the way Jesus commanded us to live. And we don't have to wonder what this looks like, this rejoicing and persecution, because Luke provides his own example. Not in the Gospel of Luke, but in the other book that he wrote, the book of Acts. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 5 for a second. We're going to read a few verses beginning in verse 29. It's this point in the, gospel, in the book of Acts that that Jesus' disciples had been arrested for preaching and brought before the Sanhedrin, and they'd been freed miraculously and then kind of re-arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And so they had been just commanded by the Jewish leaders to stop teaching in Jesus' name. And then in verse 29, Peter responds. Peter and the apostles, it says. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Do you see how Peter's faith was in Christ and his gospel? He wasn't causing controversy for its own sake. He was preaching the gospel. He desired that others would come to repent and believe the gospel. I'll skip down to verse 40. Between these two verses, Gamaliel has stood up in the council and he's convinced his fellow council members to let the apostles go and just kind of see how things play out. And so they call the apostles back in. We read beginning in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is what it looks like to rejoice when you suffer, to leap for joy, that you were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's namesake. They rejoiced that they were treated in the same way that Jesus was treated. And this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. It means living for Christ's sake. This is the great good news of the gospel too. That when we trust in Christ, we are treated like Christ by God. Right? Isn't that wonderful? God treats us like if we were Jesus. He counts Jesus' righteousness to our account. Jesus died for our sins and so we are forgiven and counted righteous. And Jesus rose from the dead and we are really alive with him. Jesus has given us his spirit. We are treated like Christ. Our salvation is bound up with Christ. This is our great reward. But we must know in this life, our neighbors will treat us the way people treated Christ. The gospel appears foolish to the world. God's law is called hateful, right? We don't have to imagine a hypothetical where that's the case. That is the case, right? We will be despised and hated the way Jesus was despised and hated. But we can endure such hatred because we look to the reward. We can endure the plundering of our property because we we count the joy of being in Christ's kingdom greater than the joy of having stuff. Greater than the joy of our own reputation because we so love the joy of Christ's reputation. The kingdom of God is ours in Christ. And so we confess that we may weep and hunger now, we may be hated, but we are loved by God. Right? And it's all because of the powerful, healing, saving, forgiving work of the Son of Man. Jesus puts himself rightly at the center of these blessings and woes. Right, right at the smack dab center, we rejoice because we are found in him. We rejoice in his name. It's he that has saved us. So we may, may very well endure much suffering for his sake. Our names may be dragged through the mud in a variety of ways. But we come back to him, right? We look to him. He is seated on his throne. Nothing is shaking that foundation. And one of the other places in the Gospel of Luke where we see the kingdom of God mentioned is immediately before Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus is up on a mountain, seen in glory with Moses and Elijah. There's a lot of mysterious things about this that we don't understand, but I think the, the point I want you to see here is, is when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about something ethereal and meaningless. We're talking about the truth we've already confessed that Jesus is alive, that he is seated at God's right hand, that he is ruling and reigning, that he is, he is interceding on our behalf. Our hope is in no danger as long as it is in Christ. He is our great reward. 
And so when suffering and persecution come, keep looking to the reward. Let's pray. Father, we must confess that our eyes are easily fixed on the things of this world, the things that our money can buy, or the the people that we love. And many of these things are wonderful blessings, good things, gifts from your hand. And we also confess that we're scared to be persecuted. We hate to have our, our names drugged through the mud. We don't want to experience such hatred and evil. And so we need your strength. We pray that we would hear these words of comfort from Jesus. We pray that we would look to you and look for the the fullness that comes from following Christ and waiting patiently on him. We pray that we would be found faithful in the days when persecution comes. We pray that as a church, we would strengthen one another. That when one of us is struggling or facing something difficult at work or in school, that we would come to each other's help and say, press on, brother or sister. Look to the reward. Suffer faithfully for the glorious name of King Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.